Welcome to church. It's a great day to be with you guys. We're in a brand new teaching series called First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage. And, uh, you know, we all have baggage in different relationships, friendships, marriages, connections, relatives. And I think a lot of us want to learn how to deal with the baggage in our life. And if you want that, you're going to love this relationship series. It's a three-week series, and I want to encourage you to come to all of it. It's going to be helpful. It builds on itself, and uh, today is just the beginning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at God's plan and wisdom for relationships. And some of you might ask why. You say, well, what is the deal? Why are we going to look at this antiquated book that's thousands of years old and whatever? Well, first off, the typical divorce rate for first marriages in America today is right around 50%. For second marriages, it's quite a bit higher. Um, but for Christian couples who go to church weekly and pray together daily, the divorce rate is currently 1 in 1,105, or about 0.1%. That's a fairly well-validated statistic. There used to be a rumor going on saying that um, Christians have the same divorce rate as non-Christians, but that is not the case. And uh, that's a pretty cool thing. Like if you're not a Christian and you look at this wide gap in divorce rates among couples, it's like, man, God's wisdom actually is pretty effective. And the longer I pastor, the more I see that what I'm teaching on today is so, so needed. And uh, I originally began teaching this um, set of wisdom about seven years ago. And uh, the longer I use it and the more I use it, the more important I think it is. So I hope you'll be blessed by this today. But have you ever wondered why it's so easy to make a new friend? It's so easy to be in the honeymoon stage, but it's hard to stay that way. And today I'm going to talk about why that is. I want to talk about sustaining real, deep, intimate connection in friendships and romantic relationships in your life. And even if you're not a Christian, I think you'll really benefit from this. And I think you'll really like it. I want to welcome Hebron online, Jasper County Jail, and of course, Demont Wheatfield. It's great to be here with you. And I want to start with a statement. Falling in love is easy. Staying in love is hard. I mean, to fall in love, I think you pretty much just need a pulse. It's easy to fall in love. There are thousands of websites today that are designed to help you fall in love. We love the idea of falling in love. A famous 2015 New York Times article was titled, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. And uh, this article looked at a study from the 90s where participants who were total strangers entered a building from opposite doors, met one another, and were instructed to take 90 minutes to ask 36 increasingly personal questions. And at the end of that study, over 70% of the couples who went through this process fell in love with a complete stranger, which is remarkable. So the author of this article is like, you know what? I'm going to try that. So she goes and she has a friend set her up with a complete stranger. They go on a date. They ask the questions. They fall in love. They get engaged. They get married. Now they have two kids and they're still happily married today, which is like, wow, that is, it really worked. So my wife and I did the 36 questions yesterday and it was like, these are actually super fun. It was awesome. You should try it on a date. Super good. But I mean, don't let your kids try it. Okay. Make sure you're married when you try it because tell you what, those questions were fiery. This week, I want to teach you how to find romance again, and uh, I'm not talking about staying together. That's a low bar. I want to talk about having real, deep, meaningful connection and relationship with friends, um, with lovers, with whatever. And I want to ask, or I want to talk about staying together in love, because that's God's heart for relationships. He wants us to have deep, rich, meaningful lives together. And if you're single, you can transform and contextualize this to parents, children, family, work, friend relationships. It'll work for all of it. But I believe that relationships get baggage for one big reason, and that is that we have an incredibly small capacity to resolve conflict. And the more I do counseling, the more I work with people, the more I am shocked that we struggle deeply to get over basic disagreements. I mean, our capacity to resolve conflict in relationships is so, so low. And when you can't resolve conflict, what you do is you just pack it into a little bag in your heart, and we call it baggage, and you start to carry that unresolved conflict with you. That's what relationship baggage is. 
And pretty soon you start to look like Paris Hilton on flight to Miami. You got 10 checked bags and a chihuahua and you're complaining about sexism and the patriarchy. Life is so hard, I got all this stuff, you know? And to start, I wanna look at baggage forming in the Bible. And you might not know this, but the Bible actually has a really good account of the very first marital argument in human history. And I think this is actually kind of cool. The first argument between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, Adam and Eve were the very first couple to be in love and they were created to be together, literally. Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And this week I thought, that's a great line, you know? Baby, you're just right for me. I said that to my wife. She was like, ooh, say it again. Right? It was good. But um, they've got a great experience in life. And God looks at him in verse 28. He says, do what you want. He said, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And that's another great pickup line, or not pickup line, but great line. I gave that to my wife. I said, girl, you want to be fruitful and multiply? Yes, right? Rain over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. There ain't no 10 commandments. There's no rules. It's just be together and enjoy one another. And an all-you-can-eat buffet of organic food. You know, I mean, it's just great. They're in this place. It's free. It's not like Trader Joe's a squillion dollars for an orange. I mean, it's free. They're there. And you know what? They're naked. It's the original Garden of Eden Sun Club. You know what I mean? Like, they're just hanging out. Childbirth doesn't hurt. Life is good. One simple rule. Verse 16, it says, But then the Lord God warned them, You may eat freely of the fruit of the tree and every, uh, of any tree in the garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you are sure to die. That sounds harsh, but God just loves us. You know, I look at my kids and I say, don't play in traffic because I don't want you to die, right? God looks at us. He says, don't go near that dangerous thing because I don't want you to die. It's an expression of his love. So they're in love in the garden, living their best life. And um, we don't know how long it lasted. Could have been a couple months. It could have been decades where they were living in bliss in the garden. And here's the thing. Think about this. They ain't got no pasts. They, they got no exes. There's no Instagram jealousies. There's no, there ain't no OnlyFans. She's literally his only fan. That's the only thing that exists in the garden. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's good. It's all good. They're best friends, living their best life. And you'd think it'd be perfect, but they go and they eat from the tree God told them not to eat from. Genesis 3, verse 8, it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. That hid part is so our nature, isn't it? I mean, I love the word of God. It is with pinpoint accuracy showing us the deepest parts of our heart. You know, I never had to teach my kids to sin. They did that on their own. They have a sin nature. I didn't have to teach them like, this is how you disobey mom and dad. Also, you know what else I never had to teach my kids to do is uh, I never had to teach them how to feel shame. I mean, they do that on their own. When they sin, they have an innate knowledge of good and evil in their heart, and they hide themselves. They feel shame. You know that. You don't have to teach your kids to do that unless you have a sociopath, which is a small, no, just kidding. Um, But this is the moment right here where the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, is taking root in their hearts. And for the first time in human history, a human being feels shame. They hide. It says, then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? And I love that God calls to us in the midst of our mistakes. I mean, Adam and Eve have committed the worst sin in human history. Never in human history has there been one sin that has resulted in more pain and hurt than this first original sin. It's terrible. All the tragedies in the world came from this choice. And rather than condemning them, rather than hating them, the Lord God calls for them because his love is unfailing and never ceasing. And that's why at First Church, we always say no one's perfect and everyone's welcome because it's the heart of God for you. Whatever you did last night, I want you to know you have a God who is calling for you. He loves you unconditionally. Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid because I was afraid, because I was naked. And God said, who told you that you are naked? Who told you 
Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat from? And you know you done messed up. It's that scary moment. You know, you ever have somebody, you have your mom, you have your dad asking you that line of question, it's like, oh no, I'm busted, right? And I want you to see Adam's response. He says, yes, I did, Adam replied. I take full responsibility for my actions. The failure was mine and mine alone. Do with me what you will, but leave my beloved Eve out of it. And you'll notice it says Genesis 3, 12, fake version, because that didn't happen. It's not how it went. I made that up. That'd be sweet, be awesome if that's what he did. That's what he should have did, but that's not what happened. I want you to see how Adam actually responds. And this is so human nature. It says, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Is that my fault? He assumes the position of weakness. What, what do you want from me? You ever seen people, you do this when you're arguing with you, what do you mean? Your kid, your teen, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. You know, you did it and you did it. And what's he doing? He's playing this thing called the blame game, the blame game. And this is so critical. I want you, the blame game is where all relational baggage comes from. The blame game is where conflict begins. The blame game is where intimacy and romance ends. The blame game is so destructive. And I want you to get this, and this is such a big deal, and this is the one big point of the message. I got lots of sub points, but I got one big point. The blame game is what ruins relationships. Do you want to ruin intimacy? Do you want to ruin connection? Do you want to ruin your relationship with your parents? Do you want to have a complicated relationship with your mother-in-law? Then play the blame game. Blame her. It's all her fault. The woman you put here with me, she did this to me. And what he's doing is what we all naturally do. He is creating a narrative that minimizes his role and maximizes everybody else's role. It's not my fault. It's not. And here's the thing, and I want you to get this. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. He's just not telling the whole truth. And that's what we do. God did put the woman there. The woman did give him the fruit. He is telling a version of the truth that conveniently edits out his part to minimize his role. And there's no win in doing this. The blame game wrecks your life. I want you to see this. I wrote down some of the results of the blame game. Number one, when you play the blame game, you're going to feel like a victim. Adam is focusing all of his effort, get this, on precisely the part of the problem that he can't control. I mean, there's a big part of the problem he can do something about. He can do something about it right now. But he is focusing all of his effort on the part of the problem that he cannot control. He's giving his power away. And even though he's not a victim, he feels like a victim. He's going to feel powerless. He's going to feel terrible because he's focusing on what he does not have control over. Number two, he is going to hurt his relationships because instead of viewing Eve as a co-conspirator, he views her as the villain who has victimized her. This is why all the time, you know, you've got a wife that looks, why don't you love me? I feel like you don't love me. I feel you got kids. I feel like you don't, right? Because you take the person who loves you and cares about you and you view them as a villain. They're hurting you. How many people do you know that do this? They just conveniently tell a narrative that just edits out their role and their responsibility. And instead of viewing them as a partner or a friend or lover, you just reframe them as an enemy. Oh, you know, my first husband, my second, my first wife, they were abusive. They were a narcissist. They were a sociopath. And we put all these labels on. And it's amazing. This person we once loved, oh, now we hate them. Now they're awful. Now they're evil. And what we do, number three, is we create relational baggage. This is where it comes from. The blame game. All this stuff. Because you can't resolve conflict when you live with it this way. And look how this completely transforms the relationship. Adam and Eve used to love each other. They were in love. Now they're enemies because of the blame game. And for what? What did they get out of it? And we've seen this happen with our own relationships. They were in the Garden of Eden. Adam looked at her and said, girl, you're just right for me. Let's be fruitful and multiply. Ladies, do you remember when you were first in love? 
I mean, do you remember when you would peel off the pajamas slash, you know, Lululemon pajamas, whatever it is you wear these days, and you would put on the apple bottom jeans and the boots with the fur, baggy sweatpants and the Reeboks with the straps? You would do it, you know, and you just couldn't wait for him to call or text you. You could not wait to hear from him. You used to write him notes in his lunch. I just love you so much. and I love you and whatever. And if people would talk bad about him, you would unfriend them. Man, do you remember when you used to shower? You used to put on deodorant? I mean, you used to really try. You'd work out sit-ups, crunches. You want to look good for her and... Do you remember when you used to listen to her talk about her emotions and you'd be like, tell me more. Can you slow down and give me more detail? I mean, I just feel like you flew over it. Do you remember when you used to share your dreams with her? You felt vulnerable enough to say, what if we, what if we did this? Do you remember that? You had romance. And it's all lost when you play the blame game. All of it, sadly. I mean, this more than anything else I know of kills the romance. It creates enemies where there were friends. It creates hate where there was love. And it creates scarcity where there was once abundance. I want to show you today exactly how this happens visually. Um, when I used to do a lot more counseling, I would always ask, and this is the big thing, and I brought in some examples of it today. Um, but what I would do is I bring in a pie chart. Okay, and I, I draw a pie chart and I say, how much of the problem is your fault and how much is her fault? Right? And ideally, they'd say, well, you know, it's 50% my fault and it's 50% their fault. Like, that would be awesome. You know, but it's amazing how many times I counsel people and it's like all the other person's fault. I mean, first you picked them, you fell in love with them, but they are just a terrible person. And it's all these, it's like, how does that work? You know, and usually what happens, what I get when I ask, if they don't say 50%, what they say is it's like 90% their fault, like 10% my fault, right? You get this little Pac-Man. I mean, this is my marriage. This is my relationship. You know what I mean? They just can't see and they can't own their fault. And this is, this is how our mind works. We just conveniently create these narratives where it's mostly their fault, you know, and we edit out and we manipulate and we remodel and we design. And this is exactly what Adam did. It said, then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Not my fault. What is he doing? He's creating this narrative right here. Well, it's mostly her fault. I mean, let's talk about her. You don't need to talk about me. We need to talk about her. We need to talk about what she did. We need to talk about her dishonesty. We need to talk about her problems. He's placing 90% of the blame on Eve. And on God. So he does not have to, and in fact cannot do anything about the problem. He sees himself as a victim. We create narratives where we try to um, shift the blame in life. And you know, we tell this narrative, it's, it's not a lie, it's the truth, it's just not the whole truth, and it, it kind of is dishonest. But you tell this story enough times and you begin to believe it. Have you ever met somebody, they've told this lie about their life, they manipulate enough times, they actually believe it. I mean, they can't see. They lose the capacity, and they see, and it was his fault, and it was her fault, and it was this thing. It wasn't my fault. I mean, it was their fault. You know I mean? I played this little role. I'm an honest person. I can own a little bit, you know, but really, it's mostly their fault. Let's focus on that. Let's talk about this. And, and it's a problem. And I brought in this table today. Some of you have noticed I'm preaching on a different table. There's a reason for it. This is a special table. This is the argument table. Every relationship has a table of arguments. This is where you work out your problems, kind of like a workbench. You need to have a good argument table in life to work out your problems. Every relationship has one of these, parent-child relationships, romantic relationship, business partner relationship, student-teacher. There is a table of arguments. If you don't have an effective table of arguments, you've got big problems. Okay? Now, this is baggage. This re represents the cue, the waiting line of unresolved arguments. Okay? And every relationship, the closer you get, the more arguments you're going to get. 
in. You just, that's the way that it works. You have to be able to process these. And if you get, you know, if you're ever at Chicago O'Hare, which is one of the worst airports in the world, flying Spirit Airlines, which is the worst airline in the world, they're going to lose your baggage. You're just going to have a queue of baggage, I mean, out the back door. I mean, and have you ever met anybody like that? You know, you meet this couple and they show up and it's like, oh, they, they have all their suitcases, you know, and they show up and they sit there. It's like, this is going to be a long dinner. You know what I mean? Like, you're talking with them and she's talking with them and you're sitting there and it's like, this is just a lot. You know, it's a lot. This basket right here represents resolved conflict. Conflict that's resolved. When you resolve a piece of conflict, you put it in this basket and, you know, the garbage man, apex waste, they come, they take it away and it's gone. They bring it to the dump and it's good. It's resolved. And that's the goal. You got to bring the baggage over here across the table of arguments into resolved conflict and you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Now, let me show you how this works. Right after my wife and I got married, we were driving um, in a blizzard in a farm and fleet parking lot. We don't have those down here, but it's like it's kind of like Menards, but but cooler. Okay, and um, we're in this parking lot, and at the end of the parking spaces, they have these, you know, the curbs, like those bumps that they used to have. And uh, we had it was like a normal Minnesota snowstorm, so like a light balmy 12 inches, something like that, right? And we're in her Pontiac Grand Am, which was her dad got it for her when she turned 16, and it was like almost new when she got it. And what I learned when we got married is what's mine is hers, but what's hers is also hers. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of, and this car, you know, what's mine is hers, but it was like, it was her car, you know? And so she had it and she's driving and it's kind of hard when you're in a part, you, you learn in Minnesota, don't stop, you know, because if you stop, you're stuck. So she is going, um, but she got a little off track because 12 inches of snow, you can't see these curbs and all of a sudden, wham, wham. And I was like, oh, that was the curb. Wham, wham. It was another curb. And I was like, what, 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 what is she going to do it again? Wham, wham. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? And she's like, no, it's fine. I can't, I don't want to get stuck. It's the car's fine. And she's like giggling. And I'm like, you are crazy. You know, like this is, this is not good. Like we're high centering, you know, we're in an exhaust delete mode, you know, just pulling stuff and whoa. And she's like, it still works. I don't get what the big deal is. You know, she's giggling and I'm like, you, this is not, this is money. And consequently, she was insistent, like nothing happened to the car, John. And uh, this is like right at, we got married January 22nd, 2010. And this was in January. Like we were newlyweds, right? Not, nothing happened to the car, John. And like two weeks later, just randomly, one of the springs on her car would break. It was like, oh man, I didn't see that coming. I know where that happened, right? Now, this wheel represents her fight. And I would say 35% of the problem was her crashing up that car. That's a big part of the problem. Now, accidents happen, no big deal. What really bothered me was this part right here. 15% of the problem was her owning the fact that, you know, that was bad. I just, I don't, I don't care. All I wanted to do was say that was bad for the car. I shouldn't have done that, right? Instead of laughing and giggling, being like the car's fine, just admit that it was bad. And then a solid 50% of the problem, I'm going to be honest, was my tone of voice. And this is the problem is sometimes my kids and my wife say my talking voice is a yelling voice. And I'm like, I'm not yelling. I'm just talking like this. This is how it works, okay? I'm not mad, but how many times have I been winning an argument and then I just talk in a normal way like I do and I guess, I guess I'm just too intense. But anyway, well, she says, hey, I'm sorry for hitting that curb. That was bad. And I'm sorry for acting like it wasn't a big deal to the car. It was, it was not good for the car. And I say, I'm sorry for my tone of voice, right? We own the three parts, the whole thing. We make a full wheel, 100% is owned. And what happens is you pull this from the baggage side and you can take this across the table of arguments smoothly. And have you ever had a smooth resolution? Everybody owns their part and this just works so good. You just roll this across and it's like, wow, that was great. And you put it in the resolve part and you, you, know, you be fruitful and multiply and it's all good. It's all good, right? The problem comes when somebody leaves a little part out. Have you ever had that happen? 
you know, and you're going, there's just this little part, and, you know, I'm sorry I crashed the car. I'm sorry about my tone of voice. Nothing happened. The car wasn't damaged. You just leave that, and you're resolving the argument. There's just this, this little bump, bump, and you have that, and it's all going smooth, and whoop, you get stuck. And you have to sit there and just bite your tongue and pretend like it's not there. You know, I call it eating cat poop sandwiches, you know, where you just have to like, oh, wow, I don't know why we're stuck right now, you know, and you just kind of have to whatever because she won't own it and whatever, and you get there. And here's the thing, here's the thing. It's just a little piece. You can get the whole argument across the table. You know, you're going to feel the bump, bump, but eventually you can get it all into, into resolution, Bill, and you can, be, you can be okay. The problem is this part is still there, unresolved. You know, and, 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 and it's good, but it's still unresolved. And sometimes, sometimes it's not a small part that's missing. Have you ever found an argument where a big piece is missing? And you're like, wow, I'm so sorry about my tone of voice. Clunk. And then it's like, are you, you got nothing to say? Yeah, it was your tone of voice. You're super mean. I am so sorry that that was 100% of the problem. And it's just, you're right, my tone is, ah! And you just sit there, and you have to pretend like, you know, and I'm sorry, and whatever. And you get there, and it's just, and have you ever been within a relationship with and your parent and your brother and, you know, your father-in-law or your wife, and it's just, and you get part of the argument into the resolution bin. The problem is, the problem is, there's still parts of it that are unresolved right here. And what do you do with that? You know, what do you do? And this part's here, and I want to be clear. It's dysfunctional. It's called gunny sacking. Any counselor would tell you it's dysfunctional to go into the, if you said I'm sorry and she says I forgive you and then she brings that back up, that's dysfunctional. That's wrong. You don't do that. You know, that's, that's not right. But bringing this up, that's a totally different thing because this was never resolved. Right? This, is, this has not been brought to a place of reconciliation. And here's what happens. Here's what happens is um, you get to this place where, um, you leave this on the table and you ignore it for a little bit, no big deal. But then another argument comes along. And if you're in an intimate relationship with somebody, if you're a business partner, the closer you are, the more arguments you're going to have. That's just a part of there's disagreements in close relationships. Right? So then something else comes along and I want a dog. You know, let's have a dog and I promise I'll take care of it. And you're like, that costs money and that's dumb. And why would we do that? As soon as we have kids, our fur baby is going to get kicked outside. Like, let's just not. Let's just dispense. She's like, no, I want to. And she gets the dog and, you know, they don't take care of it. And the dog bites everybody and whatever. And she could say, I'm sorry. It was a bad idea. And you say, I'm sorry about my tone of voice and whatever and the things I didn't do and, and, and whatever. And you can put together a full resolution where everything is owned in the next argument. The problem is the next argument is now hindered by the last one that wasn't resolved, right? And you start to roll this across the table and it feels good and it should be smooth, but all of a sudden you run into the roadblock of the previous conversation that was never resolved. And you could have this be totally good. Everybody owns their part. I'm sorry, he's sorry, she's sorry. It's all good. But then the new resolution falls apart on the old resolution. And all of a sudden now you've got a pile up, you've got a traffic jam of conflict in your relationship. But then something else comes along. You know, then, oh, honey, did you hear about this new website called Timu? And I know we're broke, but it's such a good deal and everything's on sale. And you don't understand. I need this facial thing and put it on my face. It makes me look younger and I want to be attractive for you. It's like, please, no, don't go on Timu. Let me just delete it. And all of a sudden, you know, whatever. Well, you own it and she owns it and it's all good. But then there's just this hurt right here. And everybody owned this part. But you run into the roadblock and you just get a traffic jam, a pileup a difficulty in your relationship. And it used to be so easy and it used to be whatever. And some of you remember when you were first in love. You know, it was just, and you love them so much and you could get through everything. And I love this. You know, when I do premarital counts, everybody's like, we never fight. We never fight. And I'm like, oh, just wait. 
And when you were first dating, you said, no, 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 no. What do you want? I want to do what you want. What do you want? Right? Remember that? What do you want? And what do you want? Turns into, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? Right? And it's crazy because it was so easy and it worked so functionally. And all of a sudden, I mean, we're talking basic. Now, (laughs) you can't even get the kids out the door to school without getting in a huge fight. Have you ever been afraid to walk into your own house that you paid for? Because there's just so much. And you walk in, it's like, I'm afraid of my wife. Or I'm afraid of my teenager. You know, some of you, and you love this kid, and we were best friends. I bring them along everywhere, and my kid, and we were, we were like this. And now it's like, I am afraid of my child because there's so much dysfunction and so much unresolved. Business partner, we were going to have $5 million of revenue. We were going to do this, and here was our business plan. And now it's like, I'm so frustrated with this person because I work so much, and all this, and all this unresolved. And eventually you reach this place where there's just so much. You know, I brought in a bunch more things, you know. This one, you know, she wasn't in the mood. And she wasn't in the mood. And she, I mean, she overate, you know, and she had a headache. And he left the laundry on the floor and the laundry on the floor and the laundry on the floor. And, you know, mean tone of voice. Mean tone of voice. And it just, you reach this place where there's just so much dysfunction. He took away the Wi-Fi password, whatever it is, you know. Sorry, i got to make space. My table conflict's getting jammed up. But you reach this place where um, you can no longer have conversation. You know, I mean, there's just a roadblock. And now basic things, I mean, there is a traffic jam. And you start avoiding each other because it's easier than fighting. You know, it's just easier. You just shut down. And, you know, it's funny. A lot of times guys think we're okay. I mean, we cease all intimacy, but, I mean, we're okay, you know. And what you do is you just raise up the windows and you just keep it shallow. You know, some of you with your teenagers, it's just like, keep it shallow. Don't ask. Like, keep it simple because I don't want to cause an explosion. How was your day? It was good. I'm going to go over here now, and you go over there, right? And that's it, and that's where relationship has come to. It used to be you couldn't wait to get home, but now you're like, hey, boss man, can I please have overtime? I don't need the money, but I, I'm afraid to go home right now. Can I please? I'd like to bid for more overtime. You used to want to get home, you know, to him, but now it's like, I'm going to Boundary Waters. Who wants to hang out? Let's go. It's midnight, but I ain't going home because I'm afraid. And this is where relationships start to get in really big trouble because what you do when you really get fed up is you start to mentally pack your bags, right? Or should I call it baggage? You just take these things, you say, this is so hard, I'm just going to pack it up. I don't even want to. And you're not putting it in the resolution bin. It's not going away. You're actually carrying it with you. That's the thing about baggage. You don't send it to the dump. You carry it with you. And you pack it all up, and at first it starts to feel a lot better. It feels like things are better. It feels like you guys are a lot better, but they're, they're not better. They're, they're just going back into the baggage section. And, you know, you start to talk to so-and-so at work, and he gives you some compliments, and he has a nice tone of voice, at least right now he does. And uh, things feel okay. It's like so much better and it's fresh and it's like new. And all it is is it's a table that doesn't have all that stuff on it yet. But it will. I mean, there's a reason why second marriages have so much of a higher divorce rate than first marriages. Because you're bringing all your baggage from the first marriage into the second marriage. Because the problem wasn't all them. It was also Y-O-U. And you did a great job of blaming them for all the issues and you did it. But what you don't realize is you are a big part of the problem. And the narrative you've been telling just conveniently edits out this whole part of the problem that you can't see, which is your role. Adam blamed Eve, and I want you to see what Eve does. It says, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? 
what have you done? And she said, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. It wasn't my fault. And the first marital argument happened because of what? Because of the blame game. I just wonder how many people here today are lonely, isolated, shut down, because you're playing the blame game. It's a really lonely place to live. To sum it up, the blame game does a few different things. Number one, it makes you feel like a victim. We mentioned this. This is a great problem in our world. I just see a world today, and especially for young people, society, Satan has done a great disservice through mainstream media telling everybody that you're a victim. You're a victim of the patriarchy. You're a victim of the system. You're a victim. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And I know of no better recipe to wreck people's lives and make people lonely and anxious and depressed than to tell them it's not your fault. It's a great way to be anxious. And we sit there, we say, it's my husband's fault, it's my mom's fault, it's the Democrats' fault, it's the government's fault, it's the Republicans' fault. And it probably in part is. But why focus so much of your energy on precisely the part of the problem that you can't control? You know, I think about politics. I think about the war in Israel. Everybody's upset about it. And, and, and don't get me wrong, Hamas is an evil, demonic, terroristic organization that is brutal, awful, evil. But why am I going to put more than a little bit of effort? I mean, I pray about it. If there's something I can give to, I'm going to give to it. But then I'm moving on. I'm going to put the focus of my life and effort into what I can control, which is dealing with my sin, not with something I can't control. You'll feel like a victim if you just constantly focus on the parts of the problem you can't control. Number two, blame sets us up for a repeat performance. <clears throat> you think it's going to be fresh and new where you go. It's not. You're bringing all the problems that you had last time with you into this new relationship, and now there's just going to be a bunch more problems. You think that co-parenting is easy? You think that a second? No, it's not. It's harder than the first one. And the third thing is blame just makes you feel terrible. <clears throat> Blame removes the romance. Blame isolates you and it makes you lonely. Blame gives you anxiety and depression because it turns the people that you loved into enemies. And you walk around life and you say, nobody loves me, nobody sees me, nobody understands me. I feel so lonely because you play the blame game. And I know there's some of you here today, you're like, wow, he, um, <clears throat> he sees me. What is the solution? And the good news is there is a solution to overcoming blame. And I want you to know God gave it to us. This is written clearly in God's word. This is super, super good. This is sociologically. All the data we have tells us this really works. And you might not want to do it, but it is effective. And it is owning it. Jesus calls it confession. I call it owning it. Owning it means saying, this is all my fault. I don't care about your role. I don't care about what you've done. I'm just going to focus on what I've done and what I can control. In fact, I'm going to put 100% of my efforts into whatever percent of the problem is my fault. And that's what I want to focus on. I'm not worried about what you, at this point, I want to, John, Jesus' best friend, puts it this way in 1 John 1, 9, he says, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. He's saying, look, do you want freedom? Do you want deeper relationships? Do you want peace in your life? Then own it. And that's my big challenge for you today. I want you to own your role in three specific ways. You want to do this for three specific reasons. The first one is owning your role will remove the tension. See, I think that deceiving yourself and putting up all the smoke and mirrors to manipulate a situation so it's other people's fault, that is really anxiety-inducing. I mean, because really, you have to deceive everybody in your life, but really, you just have to deceive yourself. And have you seen people that walk around, I mean, with all these mirrors of manipulation, I'm the victim, I'm the victim, I'm the victim, look at all this, you know, whatever. He's the one who was unfaithful, he's the one who did all this stuff, and you know, forget my role, and forget all that I did, and it's just hard. It's, it's anxiety-inducing to hold up these mirrors, do all this stuff. You met people like this. You know what it's like. Some of you, it's exhausting. It's just exhausting to tell this narrative, to tell the story, make everything, and say it, spray it, wheel it, deal it, make them feel it. And what if you just say, you know what, 
it doesn't matter what they did right now. I really want to focus on what I did. Which brings me to my second point. Owning it gives you the freedom to deal with your problems. Not only does it remove the tension from your life, the anxiety from your life, it gives you the freedom. When you own it, you actually have the power to remove it. Confession gives you control. And I love control. Those of you that know me, I love being in charge. I love it. And when I confess, when I say, hey, look, this is all my fault. This is all my fault. Oh, man, I have the freedom to fix it. I have the freedom to take responsibility. And if you feel like you're a victim, if you feel like your life is a conga line of people taking advantage of you, you're probably playing the blame game. I want to challenge you to own it. Because you want power over it. The third thing owning it does is it, it gives you the ability to love people again. You know, I know a lot of people, we have a shut down heart. We have a hard heart. I meet a lot of people, you know, hard-hearted. I meet a lot of stubborn, broken-hearted men. And a lot of stubborn, hard-hearted women in our society today. Just what I'm encountering, what I'm seeing. Our hearts are growing cold. And what I believe is owning it softens your heart. Jesus puts it this way. He says, I tell you, her sins and their many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. This woman, she sinned a whole bunch. She was a prostitute. And um, she had great love for Jesus because she'd been forgiven much. Uh, This is what he's saying. You know, when you go to a restaurant and somebody pays for your meal, what do you want to do? You want to pay it forward. Right? I mean, somebody pays for your meal. It's like, wow, I want want to do that for someone else. You know, somebody gives you a gift. You want to be a giver. And listen, when God gives you the gift of forgiveness... When you receive forgiveness from God, all of a sudden, the ability to forgive others, the ability to love others, the ability to have grace for others is multiplied greatly. And I know a lot of people, I mean, you're just so hurt, you're so addicted, you're so shut down, you're so self-focused, you make all these narratives, and it stinks. It's full of tension, it's lonely, it's isolating. And if you want the ability to love people again, it begins with coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I just think we live in a world with cold, hard hearts. Because we live in denial. We tell the truth. We just don't tell the whole truth. And today, what if you really spent some time putting together the whole truth and humbly going to God saying, I want you to forgive me. I want you to lead me. I receive forgiveness from you. And when you receive that forgiveness, you will receive the capacity to love and forgive others. So today, I have a challenge. I've got a challenge. I want you to put at least 90% of your emotional effort into owning your role. It should say 100%, but I'm just going easy on you guys. We're going to start simple. I want you to put 90% of your effort on owning your part of the role. And some of you might say, what's well, pastor? Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's, uh, it's not fair because it's actually like only 20% my fault. I don't care. Put 90% of your effort on the 20% that you can control. Why would you put any effort into something you don't have control over? Put the vast majority, and listen, listen, listen. How many of you would be happy to get 20% gains in the stock market this week? I would. I'd be pumped. How many of you would be happy to get 20% gains in the quality of your most intimate relationships this week? I would. I'd be pumped. So I'm going to focus my effort on what I can control. I'm going to own it. And here's a big deal. Don't put strings on it. Don't look at them and say, well, I'm going to own 90%, but um, do you have anything you want to say? No, no, no. Focus on your part. And the first thing you do is you just bring it to Jesus. And before you go to them and before you ask for forgiveness from them, you bring it to Jesus and you receive forgiveness from him. And then you go to them and you say, here's what I've done. Here's what it is. Regardless of what you did, regardless of what you owe me, I just, 
I want to apologize for this. I want to ask you to forgive me. Not just I'm sorry, but will you forgive me? Put the ball in their court. And some of them might not forgive you, but God has already forgiven you, and that's sufficient. But I, I want you to do that. And I just, I think that God is in the reconciliation business. I think that Christianity, God's chief end is that we would love him and love people. And really what he means by that is have thriving relationships, deep, rich, meaningful, intimate relationships, friendships. And we live in this world, Satan is destroying the things so effectively that God wants for us, which is to have deep, real connections. If you're lonely, if you're isolated, full of anxiousness, I want you to come to Jesus. Bring your sins to him. Ask him to forgive you. Receive forgiveness. And then I want you to pursue reconciliation with people in your life. This week I've got discussion questions on your blue cards. You can take a picture of the QR code and it'll take you to the questions. You don't even need to do them with somebody. But I want you to work through it. Even if you're not a Christian, I want you to work through it. And I just see God healing relationships between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and husbands and wives. I see business partners finding a level of reconciliation that they haven't had. I just see a great deal of healing and restoration in this series. That's my prayer. And you guys, I've been praying for you all week. I've been anticipating what God is going to do through his word, through his gospel in our hearts. I just can't wait to see our churches be a place of deep, thriving, fulfilling, rich, meaningful relationships. I hope that you'll do something with this message. As we close, I want to ask you to stand to your feet. And I'd like to pray for all of our churches. God in heaven, I just, I lift up our churches to you. I lift up the people of our churches where many of us have tension in our lives. We have struggling relationships in our lives. And Lord, I ask that because of your wisdom, because of your grace, because of the way you first loved us, you would give us the courage to love others with a humility and a compassion and a grace that comes only from you, Lord. Would you restore broken marriages? Would you restore dysfunctional parent-child relationships? Would you restore and heal broken sibling and business partner relationships and friendships? God, would you make this a place full of deep, intimate, real, connected love that reflects your love for us? God, I thank you that you are a healer and a restorer. Holy Spirit, right now I ask that you would fall hard on people's hearts that this message was meant for. Would you make us just right now resolve to act on this. So in the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen.